0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to learn about the most inspiring people living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines. And today's topic of conversation is one that I've been looking forward to covering for quite some time. It's, um, it's a topic that I think needs to be at the forefront of our minds when we are planning for a sustainable future especially as the global population grows. So the topic we're covering today is climate forward, climate ready and climate resilient cities. And I wanna be clear that I am by no means a global population expert, but from what I have studied and the trends that I've seen, they show that as the number of people on the planet grows, many of them are going to be drawn to dwell in urban centers, though, I believe it's entirely possible we'll see these trends change as a result of COVID-19 to people possibly opting to work from home more and in places where we are more spaced out and not living in such close quarters, but I suppose we'll have to wait and see what time will tell us about that. Um, But anyway, now that you have my two cents on that issue, I would like to turn your attention to the more important perspective on the matter of sustainable cities my guest today, Hannah Payne. So Hannah is the sustainability coordinator for the city of Somerville, which is the lovely city where I currently reside. She is the manager of Somerville Climate Forward and leads the Somerville Climate Forward Ambassadors program that I participate in. She is someone that I have come to admire over the past few months, and I think she's doing really important work with her colleagues in Somerville's sustainability office to establish the city as a leader in climate preparedness and resiliency. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to get to know you a little bit better before we talk about your work and the Climate Ambassadors program. So will you bring me and the listeners up to speed on your background? So things like where are you from and what was the community like that you grew up grew up in? And, you know, if you have any fun or interesting hobbies or anything else that you would like to share.
1: Sure. Um, so I grew up in Massachusetts in a small town called Harvard, um, which is about um, an hour outside of Boston. Um, so a pretty rural suburb of Boston and Worcester. Um, so there's not a lot to do in Harvard. Uh, we've got a lot of apple orchards there, so I spent a lot of my time outside um, as a kid. And um, my family also did a lot of camping and, and skiing. Um, so I, I did spend a lot of time outside, and I think that informed some of my my work later on in my life. Um, yeah, so that's that's where I'm from. And then I. Currently live in Somerville and work for the city of Somerville as well, um, and really enjoy um, living in that community and working working in the community that I that I live in. So when you said apple orchards, I immediately went to this
0: picture of like those beautiful, perfect fall days in New England, and and you know now we're starting to see on the flip side of that some of these really incredible spring days here. And that has me dreaming about all of these different act- outdoor activities that I really enjoy doing here. And I'm wondering, what are some of your ways to connect with the outdoors?
1: Yeah, so um, I, I go between in the winters, I ski. So I'm a big downhill skier. I've been doing that my whole life. Um So now that there's no snow, I'm looking forward to kayaking, which is my favorite summer activity. So whether that's, you know, going out for a short paddle on the Mystic River in Somerville um, or planning a longer multi-day trip. Last summer, I went up to uh, British Columbia and did a several-day kayaking trip in Tofino um, on the West Coast there. So I try to, those are my two favorite ways to get out um, and be outside. I recently discovered
0: last, well, I don't know if I discovered it, but I really got more into being intentional about doing this activity more, but I I realized that you could rent kayaks and go out on the Charles River. Um, So I did quite a bit of kayaking right here in the city last year. And I found that it was such a a great way, you know, if you're having a stressful day or a long day at work, you can rent a kayak for an hour. And even though you're right in the middle of this urban area. You can still find a way to connect with nature, which I I found really important, um, you know, both for physical and mental health. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And um, they well, they rent kayaks also on the Mystic River, which is the river that's in Somerville and between Somerville and Medford. Um, And I find that is a really interesting place to paddle because there's you know, it feels very natural um, and wild even. But you're right next to. major highway 93. um, And you really get to see um, kind of uh, from a completely different perspective, the development in the area and kind of what a city looks like, but from from a river perspective. And so that's, I think, a really fun, fun way to get out too.
0: That's a new spot that I'm gonna have to check out. I haven't, I haven't kayaked over there yet. (laughs) Um, But it sounds like you have had quite a bit of experiences, you know, throughout your entire life with nature and connecting with the outdoors. And in terms of how I formed my values in terms of really realizing that we need to protect nature and protect the planet, I think a lot of them stemmed from those those moments in my early life and then continuing to recreate outside through uh, my time becoming an adult and I'm interested in hearing if you feel like you've always had a drive to protect the planet, or if, if that's something that's sort of developed over time, or, or where did those values come from?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's definitely developed over time. I think that I, you know, always had from a young age was, you know, connected to nature and loved being outside and kind of saw the value of um, conservation and, and protecting those, those spaces. But I think that, uh, you know, I had a pretty, I think in college, I had a pretty big shift in my thinking of kind of starting to understand that protecting, uh, the planet and our, and our, um, natural resources and spaces isn't just about, um, protecting animals or wild spaces, but really about, People's health and safety and economic opportunity, and that the places where we live have such a profound impact on the opportunities that we have, um, whether that's economic opportunities or health. Um, So, I became, I think, I had a big shift towards really looking at it from an environmental justice perspective um, and wanting to focus on community based work um, that tied into environmental issues, but was more focused on people.
0: And I think you're starting to get at this a little bit with, um, you know, expressing your interest in environmental justice and um, your interest in the human health and economic aspects of sustainability. But could you talk a little bit more about, you know, what is your philosophy on conservation and sustainability? So meaning like, what do those things mean to you? What does a successful world look like if if we are able to achieve these communities that um, you know conserve our natural resources and are sustainable,
1: yeah. I mean, I think that um, success to me or a sustainable world looks like one where people are taking care of the places where they live, and that is inclusive of the natural environment as well as each other, um, and that people have opportunity um and that where they're living is not um kind of dictating their outcomes in life. Um and so I think it's I, I really do think that it's a, a balance and I see that conservation and sustainability um really has to include that um kind of people and cities and where we live and how we um, interact with the world um, in a really that that's a huge part of it, and I think that for you know for a long time, and conservation to me sounded like oh we need to protect parks or um, you know prevent deforestation things like that. But I I think that I've now moved to understand that conservation really has to be uh, in- inclusive of the entire. Uh, way that we live, um, and interact with the world around us.
0: Yeah. I think it, very much, especially so in these growing urban areas, like the one that we both find ourselves living and working in right now, our beautiful city of Somerville, um, with our fellow, what is it? I'm trying to think of the last time I looked up population numbers. So, you know, I think there are like 81 or 82,000 somewhere in there, other summer villains living here. Um, And for folks that are not as familiar with the area, will you describe, um, you know, what is the city like? And is there anything particularly unique about the area or anything that's notable?
1: Yeah. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Somerville, Somerville is a city in the Boston urban area, so right next to Boston and Cambridge, um, but still very much an urban area. Somerville is the densest city in New England. Um, so there are about 80,000 people living in just four square miles. Um, so there are a lot of people in a small amount of space. Um, and there's, um, I don't know, I think Somerville's a really fun and vibrant place to live. There's a large number of young people who live in Somerville from, you know, grad students, college students, young professionals, um, but also really strong um, immigrant communities. There's great food, uh, lots of fun, uh, like arts festivals and strong arts culture. Um, So it's it's a really fun Uh, city to live in with a lot of different things going on. Um, And then from like the planning perspective, which is how, you know, professionally I think about things, there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's tough being in a city that is so geographically small, it really uh, requires creative thinking on how to fit all of the things that people want to see in cities um, in such a small footprint.
0: Yeah. And so when you're thinking about Somerville's footprint, I think that gets at a bigger question, too, of, you know, what role do cities play in creating and planning for a sustainable and climate resilient future for our planet?
1: Yeah. So you hit on this at the beginning is that, you know, most of the world's population is living in cities and more and more people are moving to cities every day. Um, so I think cities have an incredible role to play in sustainability and addressing climate change. Um, I'd have to look back at the numbers, but la- la- I think it's around, you know, cities are responsible for over 75% of the greenhouse gas emissions in the world. Um, so cities are driving all the production that maybe isn't happening within their boundaries. But um kind of creating the demand for those goods and services. Um, And so cities have a really critical role to play if we're going to meet the carbon reduction targets that are necessary to prevent the worst of climate change.
0: Yeah, and so, you know, as I was listening, as I've been listening to you, you know, talk about the important role that cities play in this larger picture of global sustainability and uh, climate resiliency, I, you know, living here, I get the feel that Somerville is pretty progressive, and we'll get into some more specifics about um, how Somerville hopefully is a leader and working toward becoming a leader in creating a sustainable and more resilient environment and community. Um, But are there other cities for listeners that may be living all around the country and around the world, um, and maybe in some of these cities, are there other cities that people can look to as sort of like the poster children for climate preparedness. And maybe Somerville is one of them. Um, I get the feel that, you know, there are a lot of great initiatives happening here, but I'm not sure if you all in the sustainability office um, have other cities that you look to as, you know, that, that poster child for what we're trying to be like.
1: Yeah, I, I I, can't point to like one city and say, oh, they've solved it. Um, <laughs> we just need to all be like them. <laughs> um, to uh, Unfortunately, not that easy. Uh, but there are cities around the country and around the world that are doing really interesting, innovative things. And we try to pull from kind of all over to get inspiration and understand what's working, uh, maybe what doesn't work and, and learn from those lessons, too. Um, One thing I'll say about the field of urban sustainability is that it's a really collaborative field. So, you know, no one wants to be, you know, reinventing the wheel. Um, There's a lot of collaboration um, between cities um, to really work together on solving these issues because we know we can't do it alone. So, Somerville is part of the Urban Sustainability Directors Network, which is a network of um, sustainability offices directors and staff from across North America. And so through that network, I've learned of really interesting, amazing things that uh, colleagues are doing in cities across the U.S. and Canada. And um, we really try to pull from lear- those learnings of what, what people have already been doing um, and bring them to Somerville and then also share what we've done with those with those cities as well.
0: Yeah, I love that you said that this is a a very collaborative effort because I think you're exactly right. I think that, you know, no one person, no one city, no one region, country, so on and so forth has all of the, the answers. And I think, you know, the way that they approach sustainability and planning for their future is going to vary drastically depending on their geographic region and, uh, you know, the makeup of their city. It's every, every location seems like it's its own unique, little case study and faces its own unique challenges, but we can all learn so much from each other. And I think that spans across the board. I mean, not even just with climate um, preparedness, I think, you know, in so many different aspects of our lives is looking to others to learn from each other and, um, you know, what's working and what's not. And I think that's one of the whole reasons why I have really come to love hosting this show is that this is a moment for us to sit down and, learn about everybody else's work and, um, you know, from each other, just ways that we can uh, hopefully plan for to win for our sustainable future. But, um, you know, now I want to focus a little more closely on Somerville, um, starting with what does your role as sustainability coordinator for the city of Somerville entail?
1: Yeah, so I... um wear a lot of different hats in this role, um, but I manage the city's climate change planning efforts. So um, at the end of 2018, we completed Somerville Climate Forward, which was Somerville's first comprehensive climate change plan that laid out strategies for us to work towards our long-term goal of being a carbon neutral city by 2050, and um, strategies to prepare for the impacts of climate change, mainly heat and flooding. Um, And so I managed the development of that plan, so that planning process, um, and now I'm kind of oversee the implementation of that plan across different departments, um, and coordinate that as well as in our office of sustainability and environment. So I'm responsible for a lot of the longer term planning efforts that our office, um, does. And then I also do all of the communication and outreach for our office, um, which includes the climate forward ambassadors program, which you're a part of. Um, and I do a lot of, um, our office in general does a lot of work with various departments across the city. So as you can imagine, you know, our sustainability touches every aspect of city operations. Um, and so we do a lot of work with other departments across the city. Um, and I do a lot of work with our planning department. So working on things like zoning or uh, new development project review, and things like that, where bringing, I'm able to bring the sustainability and climate lens to that work and make sure that um, those considerations are being incorporated into work that's happening in other parts of the city.
0: I, and I think that's a really important message uh, to share too, is that sustainability can be woven through every aspect of everything that we do. So I really appreciate and admire that You all are working across offices and, you know, cross sectors to, um, you know, look at the city as a whole and not just think about it as, okay, it's weather or it's the climate or this one specific aspect directly relating to nature. Um, You know, we can be approaching this from all different angles. And so I think that is a really important thing to note and a great approach for you all to be taking. And I heard you mention... um, when you're talking about the Somerville climate forward plan that you all drafted in, uh, 2018, uh, heat and flooding are two really large challenges that we face, particularly in the city of Somerville. And I am wondering if you can touch on those a little bit more. And then some of the other bigger challenges that we're seeing here in the city relating, uh, to climate change, and resiliency, and then how the city is addressing some of those issues.
1: The major climate impacts that Somerville and the Boston region are facing are, um, so heat, first of all, so increasing temperatures um, and hotter summers. So that's a that's a problem for our area, primarily because a lot of our um, buildings aren't designed for really hot weather. Um, Most of our apartment buildings are quite old, often don't have central AC. um, And so we're really concerned about the public health impacts of high heat um, and extreme heat during the summers, um, because we know that those, that heat waves are the most deadly natural disaster in the U.S. Um, And so that's something that we're really concerned about and know we have to get ahead of um, to be able to better plan for it and know how to take care of our residents during those situations then flooding comes in two forms in Somerville um, the first being coastal flooding so um, Somerville is not Somerville is on a is on a um, tidal river so it's not coastal per se um, but it is still uh, vulnerable to coastal flooding events in a situation where there is um, large storm surge that would come up Boston Harbor and into the Mystic River. Um, Somerville could experience flooding in those situations. There currently is a dam um, that uh, dams the Mystic River. And so part of it is tidal and then On the other side of the dam, it's not tidal, Um, but in a future scenario where we're facing sea level rise and a large uh, coastal storm with a high storm surge, um, there could be quite significant flooding inland um, from the overtopping or the flanking of that dam, which is a really critical piece of infrastructure for Somerville and surrounding communities. Um, But more... On the nearer term risks and kind of more frequent risks that we face is from precipitation-based flooding. So Somerville is, you know, as we've talked about, a really dense city. Um, And so when, when it rains, the water has to go somewhere. There's not a lot of area for the water to be absorbed into the ground. We are reliant on piped infrastructure. And for decades, Our infrastructure was, um, like many cities, (laughs) neglected, and there wasn't a lot of investment in that. Um, So we have some really old pipes that are not sized correctly for the size of our city today, let alone um, the size of storms that we're expecting in the future. Because with climate change, the northeast of the U.S. is um, projected to have larger storms. um, So... When it rains, we'll get more rain fall um, with those storms. So we'll have to manage more water coming into our city and trying to convey that out quickly. So most of the flooding happens because we're not able to quickly move that water that's falling um, out of, and convey it out of the city.
0: Yeah, and you know I've already seen this happening, um, which is interesting to see how this will progress into the future, you know, if you're already seeing the impacts pretty severely now, when we get those really intense rainstorms, you know, throughout the spring and um, summertime, where you just get a lot of rain really fast. And, you know, fortunately, my apartment's on the top of a hill, but, um, you know, my neighbors and other folks that live around here, you know, Somerville has some pretty hilly areas. And you see those areas of town just they go underwater shockingly fast, um, to the point where it's it's scary and could be really dangerous. Um, so, you know, thinking about flooding, I think, um, you know, my mind normally goes to sea level rise and water coming in from the Mystic River and and tidal you know tidal basins, tidal rivers, but um, that aspect of having proper infrastructure in place in a city, especially one that's as old as Somerville and Boston. You know, that's quite a challenge um, that we're faced with moving forward when we are going to get more precipitation and tar- start to see, uh, you know, more of that coming in. And um, is are there ways that the, the city is addressing that right now? Are there infrastructure updates? I know that at this specific moment, it's a little tough because we're in a very unique moment in time where everything has sort of come to a halt. But how is Somerville planning to address some of these challenges?
1: Yeah, so it is a, it is a big um, challenge, but um, what's what's great in Somerville is um, our engineering department is, has been a great partner with, with us. And so we've been able to do some projects between our two departments to really understand where flooding is most likely to occur um, and what future storm impacts will look like on our system. Um, And so they have a number of high priority projects that are really intended to kind of address some of those pinch points in the system. Um, And then also kind of looking at all aspects of what we can what we can use uh, uh, in our toolkit to understand flooding or to address flooding. So that does include things like green infrastructure, which can provide, you know, a limited, uh, solution it won't it won't help with kind of the really big storms but you know for more of the frequent um smaller storms it can help absorb some of that water um looking at things like doing projects that are separating our combined stormwater and sewer systems so that water can be conveyed more quickly and doesn't have to all be combined together and then also helping with that pollution problem of having combined um overflow into our waterways. So preventing that. Um, and then another piece of it is also kind of doing some education. I think that the reality is we are already living with, with flooding, um, in some cases, and we probably won't be able to avoid it all, given that, you know, where you're already seeing it today, it's already happening. (laughs) Um, and you know, you can work as fast as you can, but changing over a whole stormwater system is not, uh, Easy task. It's time-consuming and it's really expensive, um, and requires you know inconveniences for a lot of people too, digging up streets, etc. Um, so we're also looking at education to make people more aware of of the risks and trying to get ahead of some of these storms to understand. Okay, maybe you um, are able to move your car or you understand how to um, prepare for potential flooding in your basement. Um, with a few things and then uh, a few easy fixes that then doesn't make it as devastating um, if you do end up having water in your basement. So things like that, really looking at a range of solutions from those big, um, intensive projects um, to the um, kind of lighter touches uh, that we can can do as well as a city.
2: The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella Check them out at LJA.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your Dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable Dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com.
0: Yeah, and so we know that our our future is going to be a lot more wet up here. We're going to see a lot more precipitation, but it's also posed to get warmer. And a lot of the reason that it's getting warmer, you know, is greenhouse gas emissions. And I think that this is something that I found really fascinating through the Climate Ambassadors Program, which we'll get to in a minute, um, talking a little bit more about that is part of the reason why I joined the program is because, you know, I spent a lot of time focusing my efforts on our coastlines and the ocean and thinking, you know, about climate change at a more global level. But I wanted to learn more about what I can do right here in my own city and then learn about what's happening here in my own city in terms of how the climate is changing and then what's being done to, um, you know, set us up for a healthier future. And I think one of the most interesting things to me was um, talking about greenhouse gas emissions in Somerville. And so I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about, um, you know, what we're seeing in terms of our emissions here and what's being done to hopefully reduce those.
1: Somerville... In Somerville, we have a goal for our community to have net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And so that is the goal that is required to um, meet staying in line with the 1.5 degrees C target um, for kind of keeping global warming in check. That's the trajectory that all cities and all communities need to be on to meet that goal. Um, So that's where that comes from. And so. With setting that goal, um, kind of the first step that the city needed to do was understand where our greenhouse gas emissions come from. Um, So we've undertaken greenhouse gas inventories um, every two years since 2016. Um, Sorry, 2014. Um, And we – in – Looking at that, we have found that two thirds of our greenhouse gas emissions come from buildings. Um, So that includes, you know, heating primarily from natural gas, but also heating oil, Um, because while it's getting hotter, uh, we still have really cold winters in Somerville. So we need a lot of heating Um, and then electricity. Um, So that's where most of the emissions come from in the city. About a third of our emissions come from the transportation sector, and the majority of those come from personal vehicles, um, personal vehicle trips. And then just 2 to 3% of our emissions come from waste. Um, so that's a pretty small percentage and I think is one of the things that is surprising to people um, because a lot of the messages that we hear when we think about sustainability or climate change, um, we often... Focus on the things that we have the most connection to, and I think you know waste and recycling and are things that we interact with every day, and so that is often at the top of people's minds. Um, but actually, is a pretty small percentage of our emissions. But one thing I'll say about that is um, that's following a standard protocol that cities around the world use to um, track their greenhouse gas emissions. But it doesn't include all of the emissions that are generated from all of the things that we consume um, as the Somerville community. So it doesn't count, um, you know, my cell phone that I purchased that was manufactured in China and shipped um, to Somerville. Um, It doesn't include things like that. It's just what happens within our borders. And one of the reasons we look at um, emissions like that, well, one is that it's a standard process so we can compare between cities. But the other is that those are things that we have more control over as a city, our transportation sector, our buildings, um, electricity and waste um, disposal. But it's not a perfect system to to be able to evaluate <laughs> our total impact on climate change.
0: Yeah, it may not be a perfect system, but it's one that's in place. And even being aware that it's imperfect allows you that space to grow and hopefully make it more perfect into the future. And I, I I, know that you mentioned earlier in our conversation that Somerville is part of a larger network of cities and municipalities working together. Um, and I imagine that, you know, that data is being shared between this network, but then, you know, on a more regional level, thinking about Cambridge, our neighbor in Boston, our neighbor, and all of the other surrounding communities—is that something that you all are sharing with each other, and then having a discussion about? Okay, so, you know, how do we address these these problems? Are we seeing certain trends in the data across all of our uh, our borders?
1: Definitely, um, I think that the Boston area has a lot of regional collaboration. Um, kind of, despite the not having any form of regional governance so other places have counties um that are important uh but that's not really how the uh, system works in massachusetts um but somerville is part of two different um regional networks and collaborations that focus on climate change so the first being the metro mayors coalition climate resilience task force and so this is the i believe 13 municipalities um, kind of in the urban core of, um, the Boston area and our all the mayors and CEOs of those cities and towns come together to deal, to address regional issues. Um, and several years ago, they identified climate resilience as a, as an important regional issue to focus on. Um, and so, um, staff come together from those cities and towns, um, Quite frequently to um, share kind of what we've been working on on climate resilience, and then um, more recently, those um, the Metro Mayors Coalition also made a uh, commitment to be uh, to meet net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And so now those same communities we're all both we're all working on um, working towards carbon neutrality as well as preparing for the impacts of climate change. And so there's a lot of kind of efforts around um, sharing lessons learned, as well as working on projects together. And then even more recently, um, we've joined and helped form the Resilient Mystic Collaborative, which is a watershed focused climate resilience um, coalition that is um, Focused, um, it's it's made up of the cities and towns in the Mystic River watershed, um, and really looking at issues around flooding and climate resilience at the watershed scale. Um, and that's been important as well because, you know, as as I was describing some of those coastal flooding issues, um, as well as the precipitation-based flooding issues, those really don't follow municipal boundaries, and so it's important for us to be able to work with our neighbors on solutions that really meet the um uh that really address the challenges that we're facing and that are solutions that will work for all of our communities.
0: Yeah, and I you know, I think a, a common theme that I'm hearing throughout this conversation is a strong emphasis on the importance of planning. Um in that planning for a healthy city and a resilient city is something that takes a lot of different voices, a lot of different um you know, uh, areas of expertise and a lot of different research. You know, it just takes time. It takes a lot of effort, but it is so important to do in order to make sure that our communities are protected from what's coming in the future. And um, you know, thinking from an environmental justice standpoint, you know, as I sit here in Somerville, as we both do, um, thinking about you know, it's really amazing to hear all of the great work that's being done in the sustainability office. But then also, you know, considering a different future or even our, our realistic future, like what will happen as climate continues to change, um, you know, I'm thinking about how this might impact people living here. Um, and if you have any insight on if there are people that will be more intensely impacted by a changing climate, than others? And if so, who and how may they be impacted?
1: I've said this in the ambassador's meeting, I say, I feel like I say it all the time, we'll all be impacted by climate change, but we won't all be impacted equally. Um, So you're totally right. You know, there are, um, you know, climate change will not Kind of, it doesn't treat everyone the same, Um, and I think what we're seeing right now with with COVID nineteen is is kind of an interesting parallel. Um, You know, what we're seeing with this is that the communities that are most impacted and the people who are most impacted are those with you know who are um, already have fewer fewer resources, are already discriminated against in other ways, or are facing other inequalities, um, and that. That this kind of crisis is just expanding those inequalities. So, th- so I think climate change will be a similar um, ha- has a similar effect, right? So, it is in it's a multiplier on stresses that already exist, whether that is housing insecurity or income inequality or racism. Um, that climate change kind of just amplifies a lot of those inequalities that we already are experiencing. Um, And that comes kind of in the form of communities that have been overburdened by poor air quality are then more susceptible to um, health risks from high heat days or um, individuals and households that have Insecure housing or maybe living in more vulnerable and precarious housing situations that would then be more vulnerable and have fewer opportunities um, to kind of deal with a flooding scenario. Um, So those are some of the things that we try to think about um, and plan for all the time is how can we make sure that our climate strategies are not exacerbating the existing inequalities and are actually trying to work to fix those systems that aren't working. Um, And I think that the other piece of it is on the um, climate mitigation side. We often see that, you know, it's, it's, uh, homeowners are more able to um, weatherize their homes and benefit from that than renters are, for example, um, or install a heat pump and change their heating system to be able to reduce their household greenhouse gas emissions and benefit from some of those um, those changes. So whether that's buying an EV or um, getting solar on your roof, those are easier for some people to achieve than or to access than others. So we're really trying to figure out how do we level the playing field so that um, – so that everyone in our community can access the, the benefits that come from being able to make a more sustainable choice as well.
0: Yeah. And I think that point exactly emphasizes why the work you all at the sustainability office, you know, why that work is so important and why it's important to include the community in your decision-making process. Um, so that the policies and the initiatives that you're developing and implementing are You know, they accurately reflect the folks that are living here. And, you know, at least from my perspective, being participating in the Somerville Climate Forward Ambassadors program, I feel like that is a really interesting and unique way to approach that. Um, So I'd like to talk about the program in in just a minute, but I'm wondering if there are other ways outside of the program that you guys are including the community in your decision making process and um, the process of developing your different sustainability goals and priorities and initiatives?
1: Yeah. So when we were developing the climate forward plan, we had a lot of um, community participation. We had different topic focused working groups that we invited members of the community to participate in. Um, So that was one way. But then as we're kind of diving into the initiatives in more, or the strategies in more detail and really starting to implement them. We're also engaging um, different stakeholders in the process of developing those. Um, So for example, I'm working on an electric vehicle strategy um, project that's really targeted at um, renters right now. And in that, you know, I put together an advisory group um, that brought together different residents and stakeholders um, and, you know affordable housing providers to be able to provide input into that project so that's one way that we do it um and then the ambassadors program is another way um which i don't know you might have another question on but <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. let's let's dive into it. That was where I was going next anyway is this like long teased <laughs> program that we keep like briefly touching on throughout the conversation. Um, but yeah, let's let's um, talk about the ambassadors program because I have, even though we have found ourselves in a very interesting time and had to pivot to go to a more virtual space with it, um, I have found it to be an incredible um, of, of incredible value both through meeting other folks in my community that I might not have had a chance to connect with otherwise through idea sharing and learning. I think it is just a fantastic program. Um, But will you describe the program for listeners and how it came to be? um, And you know, what we what we do through this ambassadors program?
1: Sure. So the ambassadors program is a program it's primarily educational program that uh, we run in Somerville for Somerville residents um, so we've now had two cohorts of it um, where the some we choose a, a cohort of, of Somerville residents to come together and learn about climate change and what that means at the global scale as well as in Somerville um, so over a series of five or six meetings um, we 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 share information with the ambassadors, but then also try to create an opportunity for um, community building between the ambassadors so that, you know, there's an opportunity to get to know each other. Um, Because we see that as a really important piece of climate resilience and climate action as well. Um, You know, it's not just having the right information, but also having um, a culture and a community of support um, to really get the work done. and then one aspect of the program is also um, a project component. So we ask the the participants in the program to complete a small project of their choosing, focused on kind of getting out into the community and sharing their you know knowledge or ideas about climate change um, more broadly. Um, so really trying to start to build the kind of um, and, and give people the Framework and and uh, capacity to start to engage more deeply on issues of climate in their community.
0: Yeah, and I think you know some of the more rewarding things for me from this program have been both having the opportunity to get to know some of my neighbors and community members and hear their perspectives on climate change, both globally and what's happening right here in Somerville, but then. Also, um, learning about ways that I can be a better steward of the our environment right here in the community, how I can be a better resident of Somerville um, in ways that I might be able to help, um, you know, both in terms of reducing my own footprint, but then help spread information and, um, you know, open our circle even more to bring more community members into this effort, because it's really going to take as many of us as it possibly can, you know, everybody in the community um, to do their part. You know, no one of us is going to solve this problem on our own. So I really admire that you all set up this program so we could have some space to talk with our community members and then not have it. I think, you know, there, of course, are there's a time and a place for Um, community meetings that are just one-off events um, to get feedback. But I think a real benefit of this program is staying with the same cohort of people over a course of months. Um, So we're all learning the same information, but then we have a lot longer to feel comfortable, um, both with our grasp of the information that we're hearing, and then also our comfort level with the other folks in the room in the case of this program, the Zoom room, and, and um, you know, just allowing for a little more like in-depth conversation and exploration of ideas. And um, you know those are some of the things that I think I've really taken from the program and appreciate about it. but I want to hear what you think uh, have been some of the most rewarding parts of this program for you.
1: Yeah, well, that's so great to hear because that was a lot of what we kind of were hoping for in developing the program. Um, Because, you know, as you mentioned, it's to really address the huge overwhelming problem of climate change. We all need to be doing something on it, but we can't do it alone. And I think that is really overwhelming for a lot of people, myself included. Um, And I think that by having a community of people who are, you know, you're kind of looking at this, um, huge problem together, I think is helpful for not feeling so alone and, um, overwhelmed because I think one of the problems or the challenges that we face is that, um, it's really scary when you look at it head on, climate change is terrifying. And I think that it can lead to not wanting to do anything about it or feeling, um, Like, there's no, there's no point, you know, hopeless. And I think that is a really damaging mindset to get into. And so the more kind of connections we can build and support um, that we can have with one another to kind of face that and feel that, um, but then keep moving forward. That's, I think, the only way that we actually will, you know, tackle this problem. So I think the rewarding parts for me really have been seeing those community connections form and um, kind of how uh, seeing people come out of their comfort zones a little bit. You know, at first it and it, it can feel like, you know, watching people like come in and, and be a little bit more like they would maybe be in that one-off community meeting or traditional meeting with the city. Um, and then kind of towards the end of the program, seeing people really open up and, and excited about the work that they have found, um, through this program or wanting to continue. So the first, the first cohort of folks that did this, a group, you know, continued to meet afterwards. And that was so exciting to see that they were motivated enough to want to continue learning together, to start taking action together. Um, and that's really what, um, this is all about is helping kind of break down some of the things that seem complicated or scary or overwhelming about climate change and giving people the tools to kind of show that, look, you know, whatever you're able to do on this is important um, and you have a, a valuable role to play um, that you don't have to be an expert um, or a, a climate scientist um, or a, you know, Activist justice warrior to play a role in this. um, That really, whatever you're able to bring is valuable.
0: Yeah, and I almost think it adds, you know, more strength to the group is including folks that are not necessarily in the in the trenches of this this you know working for an NGO like I do and doing policy work, but all different kinds of perspectives are only going to make us stronger, both as a community or in, you know, those smaller groups in the decision-making process uh, when we're thinking about these these complex problems that we're faced with. And, you know, I know that this program is fairly young. We're only a few cohorts in, um, and I certainly hope that it continues into the future. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what is your vision for the program? And where do you hope to see it go in the next, you know, few years and, and beyond?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I will say that uh, the whole coronavirus situation has really made me have to rethink what, what this look <laughs> might look like. Um, but my hope is that we're able to continue it um, and continue to kind of tweak it and adapt it based on what you know we learn from trying this out each time it was really an experiment when we started this um and we didn't know how it would go kind of throwing an open ended um kind of course and and program at at folks that's really different from what kind of how you usually interact with the city um so I want to continue to be able to offer the program and kind of learn from what we've done so far, but with, with some of the things that, you know, I've been thinking about it as we've had to shift online. um, I think that it's, it can be harder to build those, the like community piece of it. Um, So really trying to think about how do we do that if we're not able to meet as much in person, Um, but then also, I'm thinking about potential ways that, you know, we might see this as an opportunity. So some of the information that is shared, it's like, um, you know, it's it's pretty standard. I've done this presentation lots of times now on our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so potentially trying to use like video or shorter webinars that might be able to bring in more members of the community into some of those conversations and then using the virtual platform to kind of bring more people in um, it, if we're not able to kind of meet in person for for the next iteration as well. But I still have a lot of thinking to do on that, but my my main goal is that we can continue and that the folks who have participated so far are able to kind of stay connected with each other or with climate work um, or uh, efforts or even just, you know, staying uh, aware of those topics and kind of interested. Those are some of the things that I'm I'm hoping to get out of it.
0: Yeah, well, you can count me in and staying involved (laughs) in whatever capacity is appropriate, because I think it's a great thing you all are doing. And, um, you know, it's really nice to be able to interact with our other community members and, and uh, work together to help inform and work with you all in the sustainability office to do our part, and then um, help, you know, spread, spread the good word of what you all are doing uh, to address our climate issues. And, I'm sure that some of the listeners are interested in, you know, if they're right here in Somerville, either getting involved in a future ambassadors program, or maybe they're interested in checking out the Climate Forward Plan. Where can people go to learn more about Somerville's sustainability initiatives?
1: Yeah, so the best place to find out what we're doing is our website, which is somervillema.gov slash Um, So that's a play on sustainability (laughs) and Somerville, Um, and then uh, also checking out our climate forward plan. Um, So. So you can read the whole plan online and there's also a short video um, explaining the key points of the plan. So I'd encourage folks to check that out. Um, And if interested, also, I send out a monthly newsletter from our office. um, And so that's the best way to stay up to date on upcoming programs and events and, and initiatives that our office is doing.
0: Yeah. So speaking of key points, I'm wondering, what do you hope people take away from this discussion in terms of the role that they play in mitigating the impacts of climate change?
1: I would say that, I, and I think I already said this to some to some level, but um, that everyone has a role to play and that finding um, what you're interested in and what your strengths are um and kind of running with that. So, you know, it doesn't, you know, not everyone is going to be able to, um, you know, call their representatives every day or to switch their house to be net zero by installing insulation or solar panels. Um, and that's okay, right? Like we don't have to all do the same thing. Um but that it's important that we are all trying to do something. Um, so finding that thing, whether it's making inspiring art, um, talking to your friends and family even, um, you know, find something that feels doable for you to make a difference in your own life, your own community um, on climate change. I think that's really how we'll end up making, making a difference in this. Um, so finding the thing that really uh, drives you and that you're willing and able to kind of put the time in for. Um, because it's not a one size fits all solution. We really need all hands on deck.
0: I love it. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> like like you mentioned, the ambassadors program is sort of this open-ended thing that's always evolving and growing and you're always learning about it. I, I feel like that is very similar to my approach to this podcast. And very early on I um started asking my guests a series of, you know, concluding questions that are a little bit more broader than the topic that we usually will focus in on, on each episode. And, um, I started to realize that it's become an interesting social experiment in its own way, just because you start to notice these like common themes and threads and really important insight. And, um, so we'll wrap up with, with, I call them the big three, but I need a better name because they're technically four because the last question's a two-parter. But um, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know, maybe I like it because it's a little quirky and weird that way. But um, we'll start with what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we are faced with?
1: I think it's, you know, well, climate change is like the main thing. But I think one of the things that I really see as a main challenge is how um, our economy is really based on, you know, extraction and is so tightly wound up with um, greenhouse gas emissions. And I think that is a huge challenge to start to kind of unravel that tangled web of, of um, to be able to actually have the rapid change that we need in order to meet our carbon emissions goals. Um, so I think that is a, a huge challenge. Um, and kind of doing that in a way that also protects the most vulnerable people and really takes care of people and and has equity at the center. Um, So I think that is the biggest challenge we face is figuring that all out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And because I always try to end on a a more uplifting note, uh, what are you hopeful for moving forward?
1: I am hopeful for... I mean, I think it's like it comes back to people like people are doing, you know, like such inspiring work. And I think it's, you know, it's from things like just seeing, you know, even in the ambassador's program, people coming together and getting kind of energized about um, working together and um, taking on a new kind of aspect of climate action. That's really makes me hopeful Um and I think that, you know, more recently, kind of in the situation we're in now, um, I'm given hope by, you know, how much people have, I you know, have really... Come together around ad- addressing coronavirus and how you know people are willing to sacrifice a lot to protect each other. Um, you know whether that's giving up, you know, going to school. Um, you know, staying home. It's not easy, but you know, I think that people are doing this and doing it to protect our most vulnerable members of our community who um, kind of face the biggest challenges in this um, pandemic. So. I think that I'm hopeful that, you know, we're seeing it happen right now um, in these really tough times, but that, you know, maybe we can do it for climate change also of making some big sacrifices for the greater good.
0: Yeah, and you know we've we this last two part question. I know we've discussed this before we started recording, but it's like a it's an interesting exercise in reflection. Um, and I I ask these questions because we have a number of folks that are uh, either young professionals looking to learn more about what a career is like and what the, you know, the options are for a career in the sustainability and conservation field. And then, you know, we have lifelong learners that there's no shortage of advice that, um, you know, personally, I feel like I, I could use all the advice in the world and I always love to listen to people's insights. Um, So we'll start with what is the best advice that you've ever been given?
1: Yeah, so this is the one that I was like, "Hmm, I don't know if I have a good answer to this," <laughs> um, and this is not the best piece of advice I've ever been given, but I'll share it anyway. Which is that you know, after college and working for a few years, I was trying to decide you know what direction I wanted my career to go in, and I was really interested in environmental law, um, and. Uh, Someone who was a lawyer was like, do not become a lawyer if you don't want to be a lawyer. And like, I was really interested in (laughs) environmental policy and um, kind of how do you actually change the things that are the big systems that are holding us back from, uh, you know, being more sustainable. And so I kind of I went pretty far down that path of considering law school, but I pivoted and decided to just do a master's in city planning instead Um, with like focused on environmental policy and that truly was what I was interested in which was the community level work and community-based policy Um, and so I think that was some pretty good advice because I'm really happy that I'm not super in debt and um, also like working at a law firm right now because I think that isn't what (laughs) would actually have made me happy. (laughs)
0: And then we'll flip that on its head. What advice do you have for our listeners?
1: Yeah, so um, I think it's kind of the similar thing that I've been saying, um, but I'll maybe add a spin on the more kind of like career focused side of things, which is just, you know, if you're interested in sustainability and climate action, that there is no one-size-fits-all for how to engage in this work and that, um, you know, finding the thing that you are passionate about and the type of work that you like to do, um, like, find that and do that because it takes all of us. Um, And so, um, you know, it's not necessarily studying a specific thing or um, having a certain kind of job. You know, I think it's like, you hosting this podcast is a great way to engage with this work. Um, Maybe, you know, if you're, if you do want to be a lawyer, be an environmental lawyer. That's awesome. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But that, that really finding the, what you are interested in like to do is great. You know, and I think that sustainability is so broad, it can mean so many different things. Um, And so um, I think that trying to, like what I found challenging at the beginning of my career was trying to figure out like what are the types of work that I'm actually like good at and enjoy doing and what gives me kind of like energy to keep going. Um, So find those things and um, pursue those because, you know, there's no shortage of the uh, kind of work or effort or actions that can go into kind of sustainability and climate action.
0: Absolutely. And I feel like there's so much space for everyone and for people with all different kinds of interests and backgrounds. You know, we need like all hands on deck in terms of sustainability. So that is great advice. And Hannah, I just want to thank you so much for joining me today. I have a lot of hope and so much city pride knowing that you and your colleagues at the Sustainability Office here in Somerville are at the helm and are working hard to steer us in a healthy direction. Um, So thank you so much for joining me for this conversation.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. It was fun to chat with you. And
0: I'd also like to thank the listeners. If you liked this show and want to hear others like it, check out the American Shoreline Podcast Network, wherever you listen to podcasts, rates, subscribes, and reviews are always very much appreciated. You can find us on social media, at coastal news 365 on twitter and instagram and coastal news today in the american shoreline podcast network on facebook so find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines